Good morning and happy Easter. He is risen. And since I am here all by myself, I will answer myself. He is risen indeed. We are so happy that you are joining us here today. If you are our guest, we're glad that you want to hear from the Word of God. The Bible is, of course, foundational to everything that we do here at First Family Church because what God has to say to us in the pages of His Scripture carries so much more power than anything that we could come up with from our own wisdom or experience. So we've been preaching through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, but today being Easter, we're going to take a quick break in order to look at a passage that explicitly emphasizes the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, there is no Easter. What he came to do for God's people could not have been done by anyone else. And that is why this Sunday, like every other Sunday that we gather, is a day to worship and to exalt him. Think about it. There are a lot of holidays on the Western calendar that honor the work of specific individuals. We honor St. Patrick on March 17th, and then we don't really think about him for the rest of the year. St. Valentine gets his day in the sun in February, and then we're back to normal life for another 365 days. But Jesus is so truly remarkable that he deserves more than a day. In fact, what Jesus did is so unique and so crucial to his people that we would be wise to meditate on his accomplishments every day, that every day might be holy unto him. Please open your Bible with me to Acts chapter 4. The book of Acts in the New Testament comes right after the Gospels, and it gives us a written account of the very earliest years of the church. It was during this period that God continued to work in miraculous ways to establish a foundation for what the church would believe and forge the shape of what the church would look like. We will begin reading in verse 5 of chapter 4. Here the Apostle Peter has been arrested by the high priests in Jerusalem, not because he broke any law, but because he had miraculously healed a man who had been lame from the time he was born. This crippled man was well known in the temple area and had been seeking alms there from, for some time. So when Peter told him to rise up and walk, and the man began to leap and to praise God for this miraculous healing he had experienced, it caused the people all around in that area to be amazed and to wonder how he could possibly be healed. But not everyone was happy to see the man restored. And so we begin our reading in Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men 
by which we must be saved. Would you bow with me for a moment as we pray together? Lord God, the grave could not hold you. Jesus' death could not defeat you. Temptation could not derail you, Lord. Pain and suffering could not dissuade you. And so we are here to exalt your name today because you are alive. You have conquered death. You have conquered the grave and you have defeated sin. And so we have every reason to rejoice, even though the conditions of the day are keeping us from being together in one place. God, we give you the glory and we are grateful for you, Jesus. We pray that you would exalt yourself in the preaching of your word today. We pray, Lord God, that you would give us minds that can understand the things that have been preserved for us in this ancient and holy text. We ask, Lord God, that you would help us because we need you. We need your discernment. We need your understanding. And so help us to not only learn something today, Lord God, but help it (coughs) to make an impact on our hearts and on the way that we live our lives in obedience to you. Father, we thank you for your provision. Spirit, we thank you for your guidance and insight. And Jesus, we thank you for giving your life and rising on the third day. We pray this all in your holy name. Amen. This must have been a very tense moment for Peter and the other disciples who were with him. He has been brought before the very same council that Jesus was drugged before, that Jesus stood condemned before. This is the council that rendered the verdict of guilty and called for Pilate to crucify Jesus. On that Good Friday morning, Peter had denied Jesus three times, just as his Savior had told him that he would. Here in Acts chapter 4, things are different. Peter knows that God is giving him an opportunity to testify to the truth and the reality of his resurrection, and that is exactly what he does. He doesn't cower away. He doesn't try to escape. He stands and testifies to Jesus, his Lord. The high priest and the council focus their questions on the man who has, he- who has been healed and on the method by which he was healed. Of course they would. This was a miracle of God. A man who no physician could make well, a man who had, be- had to be carried daily to the same place where he might beg for alms, hoping to scrape together enough generosity from others that he could support himself, had been restored suddenly to perfect health. We would no doubt have been marveling at this restoration ourselves had we been there. But Peter knew that they all needed to be thinking beyond the circumstance. Peter intended to use this occasion, this miraculous event, to make it very clear to anyone who had gathered there that day that the lame man was not the only one who needed to be saved. In fact, what God did through Peter that day was about something much more important than physical health. All who were healed by Jesus in the New Testament times, think about this, every one of those individuals eventually died again, at least in a physical sense. Not one of them walks among us today the blind men who were given sight, the lepers who were cleansed of their disease, the woman whose chronic bleeding was was healed, Jesus' friend Lazarus, who awoke from the dead and walked out of a tomb alive. All of these individuals eventually succumbed 
to the same fate that you and I very likely will. Their bodies declined and they breathed their last breath. So real salvation is not simply about better health. It is not simply about a better quality of life that Jesus delivers to us. It is about being bought from spiritual death and brought into spiritual life. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The council, that question Peter, was focused on this miraculous healing. But Peter intended to draw their attention to the greater miracle, to the atonement that Jesus accomplished by his death, burial, and resurrection. The high priests demanded an explanation for what they had heard about. By what power did Peter heal this man? In other words, how did he accomplish it? What did it take for him to make this broken man whole again? They also wanted to know in whose name did Peter heal the man? In other words, under what authority did he accomplish this miracle? Who gave him permission to do this? Let us look again at the reply that Peter gives in verses 8 through 10 of Acts 4. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means that this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, by him, this man is standing before you well. The lame man was healed by the name of Jesus Christ. To do something in someone's name meant that you were acting as their representative. You were their proxy. You were standing in their place, working on their behalf, doing your bidding. Whatever you did could therefore not be credited entirely to you. You were sent there as a messenger by the one who directed you to this work. And if we take a second to flip to chapter 3 in the book of Acts, where the actual healing miracle was recorded, we will see that Peter made it very clear that he did not heal the man by his own power. It says in verse 12 of chapter 3, And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. Peter wants to make sure there's no confusion here. He did not possess in himself the power to make that man walk who had never walked before. He had made it abundantly clear that, that he was acting on behalf of someone greater than himself, that the power of God alone made that man well, and that Peter was simply functioning in obedience to God. Peter's confession came with a very important clarification. And this morning, I want us to zero in on that one particular part of Peter's response to the high priest and his associates. He goes on to say in verse 11, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
Peter was not acting under just any power. Peter was operating under the only power. He had healed this lame man by the power and authority of Jesus, a power unlike any other power in the world. Peter makes a very bold statement here. And it is probably the aspect of the gospel that people are most likely to find offensive to themselves. Peter tells us that Jesus is the only solution for sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God according to the scriptures. In other words, sin is a universal problem. So it doesn't matter what background you come from. As you listen to this message preached from scripture today, you sit in your seat right now with a problem. And that problem is that there is a God who is good and holy and that by your ignorance of his law, by your outright refusal to follow his commands, you have made yourself an enemy to this God. The consequences of sin, the consequences of disregarding the law of God are great. Because we sin, we rightly deserve judgment. And this is not just a slap on the wrist. We've offended the one who gave us the very life that we enjoy each and every moment of our existence. And so by offending the giver of life, we deserve to have our lives taken away from us. None of us is as good as we think that we are. None of us compares to Christ. You might be sitting there thinking, I'm not a very sinful person. This message is for somebody who's a murderer. This message is for someone who's a drug dealer. This message is for someone who beats their spouse. This message is for one of those really sinful people. But friends, when we compare ourselves to the true standard of righteousness, and that true standard is not your neighbor. That true standard is not the person sitting next to you. It's not your spouse. It's not your pastor. The true standard for righteousness is Christ. And when we compare ourselves to the perfection of God's Son, we have no choice but to confess that we are sinners. We are people who have broken the law of God and fallen short of the purity that God demands of his creation. Our sin doesn't just make us bad people. Our sin makes us enemies to the living God. And here is the part that is so hard for many to swallow. And it's interesting. Most people can handle being called a sinner. But the thing about the gospel that tends to offend people most is this. The gospel declares that there is nothing that we can do to make our broken situation right again. There is nothing in us that can bring about a solution to our sin problem. In a world where everyone wants to be able to do things their own way, the Bible clearly declares to us that there is only one way. And that way is not your way. That way is God's way. And that is exactly what Peter is testifying to. He is testifying to the exclusivity of Jesus that there is only one who can bring about the transformation that takes one from spiritual death into spiritual life. There is no other way for a man to be at peace with God than through the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. There is no name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. One of the greatest battles that God calls his church to be engaged in is this that we are to firmly hold the line 
that Jesus is the only way that man can be saved from sin. Since the church was created in the new covenant of grace, people have been trying to add to the finished work of Jesus. They've been trying to modify it. They've been trying to, to make clauses and, 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 and change what Christ declared about salvation. This battle was the heart of the Reformation movement that brought radical healing to God's church approximately 500 years ago. At that period in time, the great majority of God's church was so burdened by doctrines that didn't come from the scripture that it was hard for anyone to see the gospel through all of the religious add-ons. Trust Jesus, yes. But then the church was also teaching, but you have to strive to please the church the way the church says you need to please them. You're to trust Jesus, but you also have to obey this man called the Pope. You have to trust Jesus, but you also have to pray to Mary and the saints to be pleasing to God. You see, the works of men had come to carry as much weight as the words of God. And the church and its leadership had laid claim to as much authority as Jesus himself had. In our text today, Peter testified that the name of Jesus is power. But when people try to add to the name of Jesus, they obscure that power. They hide it. They pollute it with the doctrines of man. And so many faithful people in the church began to become very distressed by the way that man had added his own opinions to the gospel. And God used these faithful people to spark a return to true faith. The Reformation was a widespread effort to strip away the excesses that had been added to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is why the five solas became a core element of the Reformation. I hope that you've heard that term already, the five solas. Sola is a Latin term for the word only. So to return the church to its foundations, the reformers sought to reestablish the basic fundamentals of the gospel. Each of the sola statements stands for an indispensable truth that anchors the church to the word of God. When the excess is stripped away, when all the add-ons of human culture and opinion is stripped away, then these five solas remain. We're going to look briefly at each one of them. I could preach a series on each one of these solas, but just to give us a good foundation, the first of the solas is typically counted as sola scriptura, which translates into the English as scripture alone. The Bible is the sufficient word of God. And we do not need more than what it gives to us. Scripture alone is the standard by which we walk through life. And so in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes to another elder, says to him, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. That is all we need, friends. We don't need volumes and volumes of doctrines that man has added to the word. What we need is the scripture itself and a clear understanding of it by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Anything beyond the scripture takes away from the gospel rather than adding anything good to it. So we must cling to sola scriptura. Secondly, we have sola gratia, which translates as grace alone. 
What does Scripture alone tell us about salvation? It tells us that it is through grace alone that we are saved. Grace is an unmerited gift. Grace is favor that we have not earned. And because God is a true God who also happens to be a loving God, He chooses to pour out that love on vessels of wrath like us. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so our good works are not the things that correct our course. If you ask the average person in the world if they're going to go to heaven, most people would answer in the affirmative. Yes, I think that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. And then you'd press a little harder and you'd say, why do you believe that? Why do you feel that way? And they'll almost universally say, because I'm a good person. I have done good things. Of course, I've sinned. I've broken some commands from time to time. But the vast majority of my actions are are kind and good. And so, of course, God's going to look at my track record and He's going to say, I belong in perfect heaven. But in reality, that is not how salvation is secured by man. No one will walk the streets of gold because of the things that they did here on earth. No one's penance will undo the great web of wickedness that they have cast in this life through their sinfulness. One thing will get you into heaven. If you, if you end up there, it is because God has given you a gift. A gift that you did not earn. A gift that you should not have based on your actions toward Him. Your sin made Him an enemy to God. But His gracious act of sacrifice can make you one of His sons or daughters. An adopted child of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We cannot merit God's favor with our works. Our hearts are factories of sin. To the point where eternal good cannot come from us. We need God to give us something that we don't deserve. And so by His grace and by His grace alone, that is exactly what He does. The third sola, sola fide, means faith alone. The grace that saves us is not something that we have earned. It's something that we take hold of by faith. It is a gift that we simply receive from God. Romans 5.2 says, Through him we have also obtained access, how? By faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Our hope, friends, is not in the things that we can do or, or, or in the good deeds we could accomplish. It is in the glory of God that loves so passionately that he would give his own life so that people like us might be redeemed. We experience the gift of God by trusting in Him in faith. Not penance or offerings or church attendance or anything else. We come to the grace of God by placing our faith and trust in Him. The fourth of the solas is solus Christus, in Christ alone. And that will be the, the majority of our focus today. What is the object of our faith? We are saved by grace through faith. Faith in what? Faith in Christ alone. Our faith cannot be in whatever we want to put it in. It is entirely possible for you to put your faith in the wrong thing and therefore remain in your sin. 
God is not just judging us and saying, who are the most faithful people out there? I'm going to bring them into my kingdom. Those who see Jesus Christ and by the work of the Spirit are able to receive Him as Savior and Lord. These are the ones who have put their faith upon the proper object. You must put your faith in the only one who can save, the only one who loved you enough to lay down His perfect life on your behalf, and that is Jesus Christ. John 20, verses 30 through 31 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The faith that we must have is, is not in our own selves or in our church or in some government's the faith we must have is in Christ Jesus, the holy government of heaven, the king who sits above every king. And then all of this is done for the one reason, soli deo gloria. May all the glory go to God alone. God's divine plan is to save sinners like us. The covenant of redemption that the triune God made with himself in heaven before time even began expressed a desire to redeem sinners like us so that his name might be glorified. Through the work of the cross, God the Son would make a way for salvation when there was no other way. And by accomplishing the impossible, by redeeming sinful man, God would be eternally glorified. All of this theology should rightfully result in doxology, which means the praise of the living God, the proper worship of this immortal Savior. And so here, long before the reformers, Peter is boldly pro proclaiming solus Christus, in Christ alone. And as we meditate on this important biblical truth today, we're going to break it down into two elements. The first is this, only the work that Jesus did has the power to save us from sin. See the exclusivity here. Only the work that Jesus did has the power to save us from sin. The work of Jesus, sin could only be defeated through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We see there, there are many things that had to happen for this to, to, to come to pass. The law of God needed to be fulfilled. We had sinned against God, and in doing so, we had broken the law of God, and God being holy and worthy, he deserves to have his law kept. And so the law of God needed to be fulfilled. All of God's instructions and commands, all the boundaries that he set for his creation, was given not as a solution to sin, but as a proof of our need for Jesus Christ. It was then and is now impossible for us to keep the law perfectly on our own. The law condemns us. It shines light on our brokenness. It reveals what we would rather hide in the darkness. And yet the law is good. The law must be fulfilled by the one who came to save us. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus assures us, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
Jesus knew that God the Father deserved to have every one of these laws kept. And so he came and did what we could not do and he did that in our place. He kept the law of God. He fulfilled every dot and tittle of the law. There was no aspect of it that he ignored. The law of God needed to be fulfilled and it was fulfilled in Christ. The debt that we owed to God by breaking the law needed to be paid. How loving would God really be if he did not deal with sin? The world sadly would seem to love a God who was all about love and mercy and forgiveness, but ignored truth, but allowed people to live how they wanted to without any guidelines or boundaries. Most people in theory would love that God, but in practice, they would hate him. God must, because of his good nature, stand for what is good. He must punish wickedness. Otherwise, wickedness is allowed to live side by side with righteousness and the world is spoiled by its presence. So a God of love, if he cares about those whom he draws to himself, he must deal with sin. The wages of sin is death and that debt needs to be paid. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death came in through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then he goes on to say in verses 18 through 19, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. And this is speaking, of course, of Adam's failure in the garden. Adam's sin before the Lord God did not just affect Adam. It did not just affect Adam and Eve. It affected every human being who would come from him. He was a representative to the human race when he erred in the garden. And so just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Adam's failure applied to all of us. But so too does Jesus' victory apply to all of his people. Death needed to be put to death. Not only did the law need to be fulfilled, but the consequence of law needed to be remedied. 1 Corinthians 15, 25-26 says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Speaking of Jesus. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. In order for this sin problem that we wrestle with each day to be fulfilled, in order for it to be taken care of once and for all, death had to be put to the side. This will be accomplished once and for all when Jesus returns to judge all sin and to build a new heaven and a new earth, a creation completely unaffected by the consequences of Adam's failure. Jesus is the first of many to be raised from the dead. All who trust in him will not have to experience what is called in scripture the second death. Our physical bodies will decline. We will likely find ourselves in the grave unless Jesus comes back before then. But we will enter into a redeemed world. We will leave this broken existence for one that is made perfect and we will lay hold of the inheritance of eternal life that has been promised to us. Death has to be put to death so that eternal life can be enjoyed by those whom God has saved. 
And then God's righteousness needs to be imputed to his people. The word imputed means legally accounted to. And so when we have our sins taken care of by Jesus Christ's work, not only are we washed clean, but the righteousness of God's Son becomes ours. We are now counted with the righteousness of Christ. Philippians 3, 8 through 9 speaks of this. It says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Without this essential truth of the gospel, nothing else was important. And so Paul, when he preaches to the church in Corinth, when he addresses them, he makes it very clear what is important to him. He goes through his own five solas moment, if you will, when he tells them, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not proclaim, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, Paul understood Christ alone. He understood it so well that when he went to plant that church in Corinth, he made sure that his preaching didn't become so flowery and so impressive that it overshadowed the message that he was trying to convey. He wanted people's attention and focus to be not on himself, not on the messenger, but on Christ alone. Paul determined to preach Christ and him crucified. Without that foundation, nothing else really mattered in his ministry. He had to bring Christ to them first. Nothing can be added to this essential gospel. This work that Jesus has done is the only work that needs to be done for us to be saved. Hebrews 9.12 says that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Notice there it says that it, the redemption he has secured is eternal. It cannot be corrupted. And that he entered in once and for all. So there no longer remains any work that needs to be done before the Lord God. Our mediator, Christ Jesus, has done it all. It is accomplished in him. We often burden ourselves with this Imagine thought that if we don't walk the line perfectly, then God surely will no longer love us. He will lose interest in us. He will, he will change his mind about how valuable we are to his kingdom. Friends, he will not change his mind. He knows exactly who we are and what we're worth. And there was nothing lacking in God that he found in us when he called us to salvation. He was perfectly content and satisfied. He was perfect he didn't need us. And he doesn't need us now. He brings us to himself through his own complete work. Nothing else needs to be done. We respond to that work with love and gratitude. And that is where obedience to the law comes in for the believer. 
It is no longer a path to, to redemption. That path was forged by the feet of Christ. No, obedience to the law of God is our re- right response to the revolutionary work that he has done to take out our heart of stone, our sinful nature, and to put into us a newness of life, a heart that loves what is good and rejects what is evil. Only this work that Jesus Christ did is enough. And that means, humblingly, that your work will never be enough. Galatians 2.21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, meaning through obeying the laws of God, then Christ died for no purpose. The Apostle Paul here is, is putting so much stock in the work of Christ that he says, by no means will I insinuate that my good deeds could somehow get me to the throne of God, get me into the presence of heaven, could get me some sort of redemption or forgiveness. That is only the work of Christ that has made me right before him today. If I try to add anything to what Jesus Christ did and think of that in such a way that I believe that it makes me qualified to be in the presence of God, then I am essentially nullifying the work of Jesus. If I could have earned my way to heaven, then Jesus Christ died for nothing. Paul will never let that happen in his life. He knows that it is only through Christ that he has been saved and we should know the same. So only the work that Jesus did has power to save us from sin. But I mentioned earlier that there are two sides to this sola Christus. And now we meditate on the final aspect of this sola. Only the work that Jesus did has the power to save us from sin and only Jesus could have done that work. We've looked at the work of Christ. Now let us put our eyes and hearts on the person of Christ. The work of salvation is only possible because of the uniqueness of God the Son. What qualified Jesus to be this incredible sacrifice? Well, the sacrifice that was demanded for our sins had to be pure. Even in the Old Testament, when God had given the nation of Israel a system of sacrifices and offerings by which they could come to him and and realize their need for redemption, those shadows of the true sacrifice to come, those animals that would be sacrificed as a way of showing the people that their sin was serious and that the cost of their sin was death, those animals were required by the law of of, of Leviticus to be pure. They could not be animals that were injured. They could not be sickly. They could not be blind. They had to be animals in good health. They had to be free of blemishes. And even much more so when Jesus Christ, the one true Lamb of God, came, He had to be free of blemish. He had to be absolutely perfect. If the man who came to give himself carried his own debt, if that man had broken God's law in any way, then he would owe the debt of life to God himself. He would not have enough personal spiritual capital to pay for anyone else's sin because he would owe his own debt. And here's why Jesus could do what we could not do. Because Jesus did not do the one thing that all of us are so good at doing. Jesus never sinned against God. 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19 says, And if you call on him... As Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, 
Then conduct yourselves with fear through the time here of your exile, knowing that, <coughs> knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This Jesus that we exalt today, this Jesus that I hope you've sung songs about already this morning and will continue to sing after this message is done. There was nothing wrong with him. There was no wickedness in this man. He had to be pure in order to qualify to be a substitutionary sacrifice for us. And Jesus Christ was the man, one man who did this. He fulfilled the law. He deserved to be with God. And he qualified to lay his life down. Secondly, the sacrifice needed to be a man. Animals would not suffice. Hebrews gives us great insight into this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In other words, the, <coughs> the offerings that were demanded of the Levitical law were never there to really wash away the people that they gave, that they gave those offerings. The blood of a bull does not equate to the blood of a man. A bull is not made in the image of God. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. And so we see here that Jesus Christ, the sinless one, had to become like us in order to die for us. In order for Jesus to accomplish this feat of sacrifice, he had to take on a nature that was susceptible to death. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus has always existed with his divine nature alongside God the Father and God the Spirit. This is what we call the Trinity. And from, from the beginning of all time and before time began, Jesus has always been. He will always be. He cannot die. And so Jesus took to himself a human nature, a nature that was vulnerable to death so that he might offer himself in a way that was pleasing to the Father. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so Jesus knew that in order to become the right sacrifice for us, he needed to take on a human body and live like we live and offer that body as a sacrifice for us. Thirdly, the sacrifice needed to be a man, but he needed to also be more than a man. Our sacrifice needed to do more than die. He needed to conquer death for us. We needed a savior who could defeat sin, but also the wage of sin. Death is the consequence of man's sin. It is a product of the fall of Adam. Some people have in the media speculated, is, is COVID-19 this sickness that we're dealing with, is it is the, re is the result of man's sin? Did we do something to merit this epidemic in our world today? You can rightfully answer yes to that. But so is cancer. So is pneumonia. Fatal accidents. Peacefully falling asleep at age 95 and not waking up the next day. This is death. And all death is a result of the fact that all men sin. So Jesus needed to be more than just a man. He needed to be able to conquer death itself. He was, without a doubt, authentically human. 
He was subject to the perils of life in a broken world. He was not born of particular privilege. He was just a regular man like you and I. Not remarkable in the ways that traditionally make a person a celebrity. But from other angles, we see that he was unique from every man in the most important of ways. Jesus was remarkable in his essence, in his being, in his purity. He was born of a woman like a regular man, but not in the usual way. He was virgin born of the line of David. The Holy Spirit caused his mother Mary to conceive him in her womb. He lived in a sinful environment as we do, but not in the usual way. Though we are surrounded by sin and it constantly tempts us and often affects us, Jesus saw that temptation and in every opportunity denied it. He never was touched by the pervasive effects of sin. He was responsible to the law of God, just like we are, but not in the usual way. Because the usual way that we are responsible to the law of God is we see it, and we may muster up as much strength as we can to try to keep that law, knowing that we will inevitably break it. But Jesus was unusual in that he kept this law perfectly. He fulfilled it. In order for Jesus to do what he came to do, he had to be who he uniquely was. Christ alone can do what Christ did. There is no other name under heaven or by earth which a man can count on and be saved. This exclusivity is not something the church imposed on Jesus either. He declares it of himself. In John 14, 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is not a broad path. This is not an all-inclusive means of salvation. Although anyone who trusts in him may be saved, and people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will indeed experience his grace, you cannot get to the Father any so way you choose. You must come, solus Christus, through Jesus Christ. The priests who arraigned Peter that day, who rejected Jesus, were rejecting their only hope for salvation. And the same is true today. If you have the Son of Man, you have the life. If you do not have the Son of Man, you do not have the life. If your faith is not firmly planted on the only one who can save, then enjoy the life you have here on earth while you can, friend, because when it is over, you will not look forward to the judgment that awaits. We pray and hope that the preaching of the gospel today will help you to see that there is a more excellent way. That you do not have to march into the, the life after this one with the heavy weight of condemnation upon your shoulders. That instead you can put your faith and trust in the one whom God sent, the remedy that he prepared. The one who alone was pure enough, was holy enough to take the weight of sin upon himself and not be crushed by it. Many of us have been feeling a heavy sense of aloneness and isolation because of this quarantine. In completing the work that only Jesus could accomplish, Jesus experienced an aloneness that the faithful will never have to experience. 
on his way to accomplish this good work, the person of Jesus shed everything that might hinder what he had to do. He shed his freedom, allowing himself to be betrayed and submitting himself to an unjust trial. In fact, trial after trial where he was accused of things that he did not do. He was alienated by his friends, those whom he loved the most. When they were in the garden before his betrayal, he asked them to simply pray for him and they fell asleep. They couldn't even pray for him. And then Judas, one of his own 12 disciples, came and betrayed him with a kiss, showing the the consulate and the soldiers who Jesus was so that they might arrest him. And then, as things began to ramp up in intensity, the disciples began to flee from him. Peter, his dearest disciple, denied him three times. And then after the crucifixion, they all fled to locked doors. And even worse than that, Jesus was forsaken by the Father. Now we understand in John 16, verses 31 through 33, that Jesus declared that God would be with him through the sacrifice. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Isn't that the truth? But take heart, I have overcome the world. And so the Father was with Jesus along the way to the cross. But the apex of Christ's work took him to a very difficult place. And if you read the account at the ends of each of the four Gospels, then you'll read about how having taken the weight of sin upon his shoulders, having taken the guilt of our iniquity upon himself, that Jesus became so wretched and so debased and such a curse that the Father could no longer even look upon the Son. Can you imagine the loneliness of that? That Jesus who had experienced unending fellowship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit for eternity, for that moment, for your sake, took the weight of the sin upon him and became detestable to God. God had to turn his face away. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ says there as he's hanging upon the cross, bleeding and suffering for us. He didn't stay forsaken, friends. He rose victorious, and that is what Easter is really all about. It's about remembering the fact that Christ was willing to suffer and die and to give himself for us, but he also did what no normal man could do. He fulfilled his prophecy. Though the temple, his body was torn down in three days, he rose again victorious. But he suffered. He suffered on the way. Christian, don't ever make the mistake of thinking more of your trial than you should. I know that we each are subject to the difficulties of life in the fall and there are times when when life can become so difficult and you can feel so alone that it's almost more than you can bear. But don't make the mistake of describing whatever you're going through as hell on earth. Too often I hear those words escape the mouths of those who should know better. If you know Christ, you will never taste hell. 
because Christ tasted it for you. Christ experienced the weight of your sin. He experienced a cold loneliness that you will never have to experience so that you can be one with Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, with the Father for eternity. In the beginning of this sermon, I asked the question, what had changed to make Peter stand and testify? Just a few short days earlier, he was running away. He was swearing that he did not know Jesus. And yet the man that condemned Jesus brings him before the council and demands an explanation of him, and he does not cower this time. He does not run. He does not make excuses or lie. He testifies to this Jesus Christ. Why does he do that? Because he's experienced something in between those two episodes that has changed him forever. He's experienced the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter has come to see that the work that Jesus promised he would do has been accomplished and fulfilled in Christ. And he has seen the resurrected Jesus. He has seen the empty tomb. He has seen the holes in Christ's hands and side. And he knows that God has accomplished what he sent Christ to do. And so now he has confidence, not in himself, but in the one who could do the work that was required to make him new. So Peter stands as a bold witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Are you confident that you have an eternity with God? You can only be so if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. If you have surrendered yourself to him, acknowledging your sin, repenting of what you used to be, and knowing that God through Christ has now made you something new. If that does not describe you today, I urge you, friend, to spend this Easter in deep contemplation. Examine your heart and see if there be any wicked way in you. I guarantee you there is. We cannot see ourselves as faultless if we are honest with ourselves. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There was only one of us who stood tall and kept the law of God. And that one is Jesus Christ. And he reigns alive today as the risen Savior whom we exalt. Let's bow our heads together as we conclude in prayer. God, we thank you for this wonderful day that we can come and see the sunshine of your son, Jesus Christ, that he has shined light into the dark places and has overcome every boundary that we could not break through. Without his work, we would be a lost people. Without his sacrifice, the weight of sin would be our own. But I thank you, Lord God, that you have made a way. And we proclaim along with the reformers, we proclaim along with Peter that Christ alone is the means to salvation and reconciliation. I pray that even today, God, that you would be mending the hearts of the broken, that you would use this current crisis situation to make people stop and pause and to really consider the weight of their disobedience to your law. So many believe that there is a God, but they pay no attention to you. So many say that they have put their faith and trust in you, but you wouldn't see it by their lives. I pray, Lord God, that those who do not yet know you, Lord, would truly, sincerely turn away from their sin by your power and trust in the risen King that we exalt today.
May he be glorified in the preaching of this word and the receiving of it and in our obedient response to it. We thank you for all these things in his perfect name. Amen.